How long is a good sermon? <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. But, but Caleb, make sure you listen up here. Uh, I could say that we're about to find out, but that probably wouldn't be wise on my part. Uh, but of course, the length of a sermon doesn't necessarily indicate its quality or lack thereof. Charles Spurgeon when asked about the subject, said, when a man has nothing to say, it generally takes him a long time to get to the end of it. He also said, in general, a long sermon is a great evil. Pay attention, Caleb. I've said that Hebrews reads like a sermon. In terms of length, Hebrews contains about 6,900 words, If and if you were to speak that at a average pace of 130 words a minute, it would take about 53 minutes to complete. Many of Spurgeon's sermons were more than 7,000 words in length, which would take about an hour or more. I won't tell you how many words are in my sermon today, although if you want to count, we're up to 151 words now. The passage in Hebrews we're looking at today is only about 350 words in length. But in this passage, we have what I I think we could say is a sermon within a sermon. It's an exposition of verses 5, 6, and 7 of Psalm 8. And to no one's surprise, it's all about Jesus Christ. And it's all about how we see Jesus. Let's read the passage, Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God we might taste death for every he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying i will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation i will sing your praise and again i will put my trust in him and again Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The author here in the passage says that we see Jesus. And I want to look at how we see Jesus today. We see Jesus in the now and not yet. We see Jesus as trailblazer, we see Jesus as destroyer, and we see Jesus as high priest. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd open up our hearts this morning. 
I pray that you open up uh, our hearts to see Jesus. To see Jesus in the way that, in ways that we need to see him. In ways that perhaps we haven't really thought about too much. In ways, Father, that have an impact on our lives even today. So, Father, again, I ask that you'd open up our hearts and help us to see Jesus this morning. In your name, amen. So, we see Jesus in the now and the not yet. Many Jews of this time believed that uh, angels were the highest order of beings next to God. Some second century Jewish Christians uh, spoke of Jesus as the chief angel. They did this, I think, uh, in order to not offend religious Jews who, believing in God's oneness, could not accept Jesus as God. Jesus is no angel. In this passage, the author, author finishes his comparison of Christ to angels by first making the point that it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. Let's read verses 5 through 9 again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory of honor and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the, of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That phrase there, world to come, points to the coming time when the rule of Christ over the world and everything in it is fully realized. The idea looks back to Hebrews 1.3 where, where it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The rule of Christ is a present reality and looks forward to the time that his rule will be fully consummated. In citing this psalm, Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews does not identify the psalmist, I think because he wants to focus on what the psalm says. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise to God for his reputation in the earth and for his future and certain victory over his enemies. The psalmist looks at creation and wonders at how God put man just a little lower than the angels and then crowned him with majesty to rule over the creation and giving him the authority to do so. That recalls the command of God to Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over the creation as God's co-rulers in the physical realm. But the author of Hebrews applies this psalm not to humans, but to Jesus. It is Jesus, according to the author, that was for a time a little lower than the angels. This is the idea that Jesus became human. And after Jesus performed his ministry, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author makes sure that we know that nothing's left outside of the control of Jesus. This is the now. The rule of Christ is present reality. Yet, the author concedes that we do not see everything under his control. You may remember the story we told about our friend Antonius, the young Jewish Christian, in Rome, who was suffering persecution for his faith, and wondered why he was made, if why he that he was being made to suffer because Christ has everything in subjection under his feet. Believers today often think the same thing; they wonder the same thing. While Christ rules over everything, the present reality of the now 
we don't always see it. And this is what we can call the not yet. The author reminds us in verse 9 here that it is Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Speaking of the whole experience of Christ's suffering, the ridicule, the shame, the beatings, the thorns, the flogging, the nails, the abandonment of the Father, and finally, dying. But all this happened by God's grace, out of his love for his people. So that it was Christ who tasted death for everyone, who died the death that we deserved, that he did not deserve, so that by placing our faith in him and by his grace, we would not have to suffer the death we do deserve. The word taste there, where it's saying Christ tasted death, is not what we might normally think of. For example, in a wine tasting, you know, you take a sip of wine, you swirl around, I guess, you swirl around in your mouth and, you know, spit it out just to, to enjoy the taste of it. The death Christ tasted was the full flavor of death. He tasted it, he swallowed it, and you could say he was filled by it. But why wait? Christ is in control. Everything's in subjection under his feet. But why wait for everything? Why, why don't we realize everything under his control now? Why do we have to deal with what we have to deal with? Why do we need to deal with the not yet? When the now has been realized in Christ, why do we have to continue to suffer in this world until Christ extends his full reign? There are many answers. One answer is found in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward it, towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, Jesus has the now and not yet. And then Jesus is trailblazer. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In verse 10, it was fitting or proper that God the Father, through the suffering of Christ, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That God should make the founder, that is Christ, of their salvation perfect through that same suffering. This is the right thing to do. Because in God's grace, he wants to bring as many people as possible to faith in Christ. There are two Greek words in this passage that are important. First is the word translated founder. It's the Greek word achigos. The word can mean prince, founder, originator, author, leader, head of family. It's one who begins something new and original. The word carries the nuance of tra trailblazer, which I particularly like. The notion of one who opens a path to something that has never existed before, that no one has ever seen before. When you think of people like, well, explorers like, oh, Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek. In the mission of the Enterprise, which says uh, it was to explore strange new worlds and to seek out new life and new civilizations. All right, maybe that's not a good example. But one that may be a little better is Lewis and Clark. Between 1804 and 1806, they explored the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase for the United States. 
they made a path from St. Louis all the way to the Oregon coast, seeing land that no American had seen before. And they recorded their journeys. They recorded what they saw and they experienced, in part, in large part, to show people a way to travel through this new land, to trailblaze a path, if you will. Like Lewis and Clark, Jesus opened a wholly new thing. He opened the only path to God, the Father. Unlike Lewis and Clark, Jesus knew the path that had to be opened. The path went through his suffering and death. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he knew the goal, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Christ opened the trail for those who believe to follow him into the eternal family and life with the Father. The same idea is seen in Hebrews 12.2, where it says that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter, or the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus not only opened the path, he not only blazed the trail, he finished it. The second Greek word here that's important to look at is the verse, uh, or the word that's translated perfect. The Greek word is teleo, which I know I haven't pronounced properly. It means to complete or to accomplish or to bring to an end. It's not like our idea of perfect, which we think of something without flaw or defect. It's the notion that it was necessary that God made his son subject to the full suffering of humans, including his horrific death on the cross, that alone made him able to carry out God's purpose of bringing many sons and daughters to himself and into his family. Jesus was made fully adequate as the trailblazer of our salvation. The goal of the trailblazer is to draw humans into God's family, to make those who believe his sons and daughters. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. For Jesus, the one who sanctifies by his death, and for those who are sanctified through his death, we all have one source, God the Father. This is about making family. As the last part of verse 11 says, this is why he, that is Christ, is not, a, not afraid to call them brothers, not ashamed to call them brothers. The author of Hebrews here, as he is wont to do, reinforces his point here by quoting Old Testament scripture. The first scripture comes from Psalm 22, which you may remember is a messianic psalm. In fact, it describes in many places the crucifixion. Psalm 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The author quotes the promise of David in Psalm 22:22 to praise God's name to God's people in the congregation of Israel. That's what David promised. But the author of Hebrews applies this verse to Christ, showing that it is Christ who will tell of God's name to his brothers, to you and me, and together we'll praise God the Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The second quote in verse 13 is in two parts, from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. In context, the quotes are from Isaiah, first putting his trust in God rather than in Israel's leaders, and then secondly, that Isaiah's two sons are reminders of God's promise to deal with Israel. Again, the author applies these to Jesus in the context of family. <clears throat> and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The first part declares that Jesus saying that he will put his trust in God for his family, which leads to the second part of the quote, where Jesus declares his presence with the sons of God. 
that were given him. That means you and me, and it means anyone who has placed their faith in Christ. Both quotes speak of the secure relationship in God's family that Christ has provided due to his death and his resurrection. So this is what the trailblazer, Jesus, has accomplished for those who believed. He has opened the path for believers to follow him into salvation, and he's placed those same believers into his family with God the Father. This is reflected many places in the New Testament. One place is Galatians three twenty-three through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So Jesus as the uh, now and the not yet. Jesus as trailblazer. And Jesus now as destroyer. Hebrews 2, 4 through 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The author of Hebrews brings to conclusion his comparison of Christ to angels by relating something else that Jesus has accomplished. In blazing the trail, Jesus chose to become like the children he desired to bring into God's family. He chose to become human. Verse 14 says that Jesus partook of the same things. That is, he came in flesh and blood like men and women, like you and me. Have you ever wondered about that? What was it like for Jesus to take on flesh and blood? Well, one person who's thought about that is Max Lucado. And this is one thing he said. He said, angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him. Had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons? For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was tempted. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, Lucado goes on. He says, well, it almost seems irreverent. It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Let's pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. Except the author of Hebrews does not want us to forget that. Jesus wept. He felt pain. And while Mark 3.21 doesn't specify specifically the family he was talking about, it was probably the natural-born sons of Joseph and Mary. It says that they thought he was crazy. 
That must be fun to have a family like that. His own disciples abandoned him. Since therefore the children share in the flesh in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. One important reason reason Jesus did this was that through the that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus, by becoming human, becoming like you and me, destroyed the devil with that power of death. And with that, the power of death. This is another point of the now and the not yet. The devil is still active, but his power is destroyed. He can't do anything that God doesn't permit. And the devil cannot hold death over those who believe. The Bible calls those who do not believe slaves to sin. The author in Hebrews here reminds us of another type of slavery. Before believing, we were slaves to the fear of death. But Christ destroyed that, and the devil too. And he did it to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Commenting on this, Ray Stedman said, It is the fear of that kind of death which creates the frantic restlessness found in so many. That unsatisfied, unsatisfied restlessness, that yearning for what cannot seem to be found, is at least partly what the writer here means by slavery. Like a slave bound to a cruel master, human beings find themselves forced to keep searching for what they can never attain. They try everything, but nothing satisfies. There's pleasure and fun, but seldom peace and contentment. Soon everything pales and the search must begin again. It's a lifelong bondage, for the quest never ends until life itself does. Except for those who believe. Those who have placed their faith in Christ are no longer slaves to the fear of death. They're no longer slaves to sin. Sometimes you hear people say things like, they're not afraid of dying, but they're afraid of the process of dying. You know, I get that. The process of dying can be fearful, but the result of the process, whether it is short or whether it is long, for the believer is not filled with fear. Because our physical death is our entrance into the reality of being in the presence of God. As significant, it is that we have no fear of what the Bible calls the second death. That is the death that separates those who do not believe from God for eternity. Those who are in Christ do not have that fear, because at our physical death, we will be with God, and we will be with his family. The author reminds us in verse 16 that he says, he, for surely, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's not for angels that Christ did this. It's for those who believe. If you have put your faith in Christ today, it's for you. That faith makes us Abraham's offspring, which we mentioned a moment ago from Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Jesus the destroyer, the one who destroyed the fear of death and the one who destroyed the devil, is also Jesus the deliverer the deliverer from death and from the fear of death. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, kneeling it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then we see Jesus as high priest. Hebrews 2, 
17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus chose to be like us. However, the author here tells us that Jesus had to be made like us. Had here is used in the sense that it was a necessary obligation. That was the only way Jesus could accomplish his goal. There was no other alternative. For Jesus to have refused this would have been to refuse to be our Savior. If he did not take on humanity, he could not have known what it was like to be human, and he could not have known temptation to sin, and he could not have known suffering as we know it. He had to be made like us in every respect. Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Unlike many or perhaps even most Jewish high priests, the primary function of the high priest in the Old Testament was to complete sacrifice for the sins of the nation. This is one done once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest had to have his own sins covered before he, by sacrifice before he entered the Holy of Holies, the innermost room in the temple that only the high priest could enter and only on this one day a year to offer sin sacrifice for the nation. The high priest would have had a rope tied around his waist so that after he entered the Holy of Holies, if he was found to have unconfessed sins and it hadn't been covered by sacrifice, God would kill him. The rope was so that his dead body could be dragged out of the Holy of Holies. (laughs) I don't know why I find that amusing. But in his service as high priest, Jesus did what no Jewish high priest could do. He willingly and faithfully offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice that made propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the idea that the wrath of the the idea that the wrath of God toward sin, toward our sin, is removed by Christ's merciful sacrifice, so that God can then express his full love toward those who believe. Propitiation is the service that Jesus performed with his death and resurrection. He became our permanent, once for all, high priest that performed the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God against us. The author later says in Hebrews 10 that it's impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. To be able to be both merciful toward sinners and faithful to a holy God, it's only possible because of the offense of sin before God has been removed by Christ's death and resurrection. The author ends this section in verse 18 by saying, because he himself has suffered when when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, we know Jesus was tempted. We know he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, but that wasn't the only time Jesus was tempted. In fact, at the end of the temptations in the wilderness, in Luke 4, it says that the devil departed Christ until a more opportune time. There was more temptation to come, and I expect that there was a lot more temptation. In this context, though, it seems that the author is specifically thinking of the temptation at Christ going to and enduring the cross. When you think of Jesus in Gethsemane, where Jesus asked the Father for three times, to remove him from having to make this sacrifice, for having to suffer and to die. He was tempted here while in the deepest of suffering. We remember the blood as sweat drops falling from his forehead. 
But he didn't avoid it. He didn't shrink away from it. He didn't escape it. But he endured it, submitting to the Father's will. As a result, Jesus is now able to help us when we are tempted. This, of course, applies to any temptation. But given the context of Hebrews, the temptation the author must be thinking of is the temptation we experience, we experience to drift away. To drift away from our full commitment to Christ, especially during persecution. Whatever the temptation, Jesus knows it. And he knows the temptation to drift away while experiencing suffering. He is able to help you when you face such temptations. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Well, I'd like us to think about three things here. In the now, God has put everything in subjection to Christ. The power of the devil and the power of death had been destroyed. In the not yet, we do not see that full subjection. Things are stolen from us. We have to replace our broken cars. We have to fix failed water heaters. We have to deal with financial problems and illnesses like COVID and cancer. I went to uh, the dermatologist about 10 days ago. I had to have some things removed from my face, little goodies, and you know, use the liquid nitrogen, sprayed the goodies on my forehead, and that, and that was fun. Um, and then he looked over my back and other places, and he saw on my back a little patch, and he thought he needed to scrape it and put the scrapings into a tube and to send it off for testing. And, and the testing hasn't come back yet, but the, the doctor said he was uh, just about 100% certain that it was basal cell carcinoma. Now, <clears throat> uh, basal cell carcinoma apparently is one of the most common cancers in humans. It's uh, one of the easiest to treat. Uh, it's, uh, it, it almost never metastasizes. Uh, and the treatment is, is pretty much just, you know, once the tests come back and the doctor confirms that it is, I'll go back in and he'll take probably an ice pick and a melon ball and scoop out the, the rest of it there. <coughs> um, <laughs> that's what I imagine. That's what I think of. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is not a devastating diagnosis for me. There are many people who have had much worse diagnosis. But I wonder, and I think a lot of people wonder why. Why do we have to deal with things like cancer? Believers especially, why do we have to deal with stuff like this? Christ is, has all the power. He's destroyed the devil. He's destroyed death. Why do we have to deal with that? But, nevertheless, Christ does have all things under his control. But he has work to do in your life. He has work to do in my life. The primary work he has to do in us is to make us more like him. He has work to do through your life into the lives of others. And he has work to do uh, through you so that others will come to faith in him. Very often, by using these very things in your life, that seem to be out of Christ's control. 
but in the reality that he is using under his control to accomplish his work in you and in the lives of those around you. So, we wait. And we trust. And we look forward to the day when he decisively decisively deals with sin and evil. We wait for the day when the not yet is swallowed up by the now. So we wait and trust. Wait and trust your high priest. Secondly, we sometimes say that or feel that no one knows what I'm going through. No one knows what I'm dealing with. No one knows my pain. No one knows my suffering. Okay, well, maybe that's true. But Jesus knows. He understands the temptations you have. He understands the fears you have. And because he knows, he can help you. I know a person, uh, some of you know, uh, who has battled cancer. Much more devastating than my little basal cell. I spoke to the person a little while ago and just quizzed them about their experience with this. And the person told me that when they got the diagnosis that it was devastating, understandably. And they had great fear, understandably. And she struggled with that fear for quite a while and, and uh, dealt with it for quite some time, not very successfully. And finally, some guy named Derek sat with her and uh, said, you know, let Jesus know about it. Of course he knows, but let him know about it. Trust him to help you to deal with this. And so they did. And and the person told me that they began to see God work in ways that they never expected. And they began to see God work not only in their life, but through the lives of others because of all this. And the person told me, I never would have seen God working that way if I hadn't been diagnosed with cancer. And they began to trust God. And uh, he came through. So let him know. Let him know your fears. Let him know your temptations. Let him know your struggles and your suffering. He will help you. And thirdly, Jesus, Jesus has blazed a trail for us. As believers, we will follow him who suffered death for us and who was resurrected that gives us the promise of our own resurrection. We will follow that trail that he's laid out for us and that will take us into his glory and into the family of God for eternity. No more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. I encourage you to be fearless. I encourage you to be fearless as you follow Christ, as you follow the trail that he's blazed for you. Because the path has been laid out and the path has been finished. We just need to follow. Be fearless in your following. C.S. Lewis, in his last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, appropriately titled The Last Battle, ends the book by focusing on death. Aslan the lion, who's the Christ character in the series, is talking to the children who have been with him through the stories. And as they went to the land of Narnia and as they had their adventures, they had experienced death, although in the story up to that point, they did not realize it. This is what Aslan says to them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. 
Your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is mourning. Lewis ends the book by saying, And as he spoke, he, meaning Aslan, no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the one who is in the now and in the not yet. Thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for being the destroyer and our deliverer. Thank you, Lord, for being our trailblazer. May we look to you and may we desire more than anything to follow the trail. The trail that you've laid out, the trail that you have uh, put before us, the trail that you have finished that we can follow trusting you the whole way and trusting you even when we run into fears and even when we run into temptation and even when we run into suffering. Jesus, thank you for being our trailblazer. May we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.